This is the Education Gadfly Show. Males spend less time on personal care. These boys apparently aren't showering too much. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Mike Goldstein. Mike, welcome back to the show. Oh, wow. Crowd goes crazy. <laughs> they, they are. You can't hear it from where you are, but they are. People are so excited. Uh, now, for those of you who say, Mike, who? I mean, come on. I don't know where you've been. But Mike is the founder of Match Education in Boston, which, of course, runs a college prep charter school by the same name. Also, an embedded graduate school of education. Mike has done many, many more things in his illustrious career, but we'll just stick with that for now. And Mike, uh, welcome back to the show. It's really, uh, it's, it's nice to hear from you again. So Mike uh, has been writing on and off for us at Fordham, and one of his most recent pieces has got to be one of your most depressing ones yet. And, and, and that's a high bar because you've written some other depressing stuff for us too. Mike was right about tutoring being a, a big disaster, at least that's what it looks like so far. Uh, now his, his latest prediction is that the next two years are going to be very tough sledding, that rather than having a quick return to a a focus on achievement and addressing the learning loss that has happened in so much of the country, that uh, at least in where the kids are furthest behind, we might keep digging ourselves into a deeper hole. Let's talk about it in Ed Reform Update. You say it better. What's your concern? Well, I think a couple high-level thoughts, Mike. I think the first one is, I wish as a sector, we liked the idea of just neutrally predicting what we thought would happen and making some bets on it. So for example, Larry Summers a year ago was sort of sounding the alarm on inflation. He said, listen, I've got some bad news. I think that the spending that we're doing is going to cause inflation and it will make people very unhappy and there will be high gas prices and you know you won't be able to buy burgers for less than five bucks a pound and he made a prediction it turned out to be right but at the time you know people pile on and nobody likes the person who's saying things are going to go in the bad direction so i cheerfully acknowledge what you're saying i think of it more as a neutral thing i think that what i'm trying to say is i think scores will continue to decline in 2023 and 24 that our premise that, hey, we've kind of gotten through COVID, some kids felt a great amount of learning loss or experienced it, but now that COVID's over, we just got to fix it and kind of catch them back up. I feel like that's the wrong frame and that there may be some things that will lead them to decline even more next year, the year after, and so forth. Right, right. And and keep in mind, is it fair to say that we are talking mostly about the places that had closed schools the longest, right? Uh, Because, for example, you know, we've seen some test scores in just the last few weeks from Tennessee, from Mississippi, that at least on the state scores look pretty good. Like, wow, maybe they're kind of flat instead of way down. Now, most of the schools in those red states, uh, you know, of course, they closed in the spring of 2020, but they were back open again for the most part in the fall of 2020 and stayed open for the most part, you know, more so than in deep blue parts of the country where, you know, we didn't have anything approaching a a normal school year until this past school year. So uh, is that? Yes. 
especially for those those deep blue places. I think I think we'll see more declines in places uh, in blue states that correlate more with closures. I think, Mike, and if you just think about your own kids and their experience, my kids too, the thing about the schools that closed but essentially went to remote learning is they created a really weird experience for kids. Where I think for the typical kid, you nominally followed along with your teacher, but I think probably the average American kid who was quote unquote learning remotely was literally on their phone doing something else, like watching TikTok, where nominally with their laptop, their Chromebook, they were in class. And right. so you create... And, and by the way, you're not extrapolating from your own Zoom experience, are you? <laughs> Just kidding. I, I, you know, I don't want to indict my own children in this podcast, but yeah. I yeah. think... I'm indicting myself as an adult. I'm like, come on, how many Zoom meetings was I half paying attention because it was miserable? And so you try to do something else. I think you, you injected this weird culture into something called school where kids felt absolutely permitted to totally goof off and utterly reject what the teacher was asking them to do. And so I think now there's, these are anecdotes. I think this is a hard thing to capture empirically, but you hear a lot about a lot of teachers at all levels talking about that their kids now in person showing lower effort and they're inclined to do less. And I think this period also affected the adults too, where people got tired of doing all this nudging of kids uh, to kind of stick with it. So I feel like parenting may have changed a little bit. The way a student thinks about school and what the teacher is saying, hey, let's all do X. And the kid feels now somewhat more free to just utterly reject that. I think some of that's bleeding into the in-person experience. So I think that that is one kind of driver of the culture is off in schools, kids are putting forth less effort. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, that seems to make sense to me. Uh, and, you know, also just as you say, the parenting, you know, I, I certainly know speaking for myself and I you know, talked about it with other friends, you know, we, we just gave up on this anti-screen time thing during the pandemic. I mean, kids were locked inside. What else were they going to do? You know, the best case scenario is they got to play PlayStation with their friends online. So at least there was some social interaction. Of course, as, as it went on, you know, it was, it was safer. We knew it was safe to be outside. So that was an option and that got better. But, you know, that probably, I mean, and I think there's some data on this, that, you know, screen time is still through the roof, right? We also learned from our schools that, you know, maybe coming to school every day was not as big a deal as we used to think it was because they kept telling us not to send our kid to school for all kinds of questionable reasons, right? So I feel like, now again, this is an upper middle class uh, example here, but you know, from the neighborhood where I have, it seems like people are, are not bothered right now taking their kids out of school to go on a family trip. You know, because again, you're kind of like, well, psh, I'm not gonna feel guilty about that. I mean, they were like, you know, not letting my kid come into school for over a year, so screw it. Yeah. So we've all kind of, the the sort of, I don't know, some of whatever, whatever it is that we have to sort of buy into some of these beliefs, maybe they're myths, you know, that there's something sacrosanct about the school day and about your kid being at school every day and about kids have to put in effort and parents have to put in the effort to keep their kids off of screens and to do their homework and da, da, da. It all went to hell. <laughs> I think the other piece of it, Mike, is bes like beside the screen stuff is 
the labor shortage has a few different facets to it, obviously, the, the way they run through schools. I think the first line is, you know, when you're short of bus drivers and a nurse and a substitute teacher, there's really nothing else the principal's allowed to do but try to troubleshoot that. Like, you can't have six kids standing on a corner that haven't been picked up. I think, obviously, there's this question about degree of teacher shortage, but certainly one related thing is that leaders describe you can't manage people very hard or aggressively. It's hard to lead when you feel like you're walking on eggshells and that the smallest thing might trigger more people to quit. So maybe some teachers that are in the lower part of the distribution in terms of their own professionalism or effort, you know, leaders are like letting them be because they realize they'll be even worse off if they have more open slots. I think all of that combines to, it's really dispiriting if you combine kids exerting less effort, maybe goofing off a little bit more, not being combative necessarily, but just not trying. And then you see peers that are giving less and you have this kind of lost sense of shared mission. I think the most scary thing to me is we're losing teachers that are probably the better ones, the ones that say, wait, I went into this to make a difference. And if I feel less able to make a difference, I would rather do something else. Right. And so there may be a selection and the low performers are the ones that stay. Yeah. And we know, we know from all professions, people want, as you say, to make a difference. They want to feel effective. They, They want to feel like they're good at their job and the effort they're putting in is, is making a difference. And when you find yourself in any kind of dysfunctional organization where it just doesn't matter how hard you work, uh, you're just not feeling successful or effective, uh, you know, you're not going to stay, uh, not if you have other options. And so that, that is something to worry about. All right. So, so uh, now, uh, you know, Mr. Goldstein, how do we fix this? How do we get <laughs> back to the point uh, where back in some cases it's for the first time, but at least in some high quality schools, how do we get back to this culture again uh, that is focused on, you know, group effort and let's all get together and let's be positive and let's have shared success. Uh, and, you know, let's let's get that magic back. What, what do we do? Oh, and by the way, we've got about 30 seconds left. Well, the good news is I wrote, I don't have any easy answers in my piece on your blog. I really don't. I think that you're never going to rebuild culture if you're not genuinely and authentically trying to explicitly rebuild culture, right? Like there's no, I don't, there's no easy answer, but what makes me confident in my bet about like not a rebound in performance is I don't hear right now leaders explicitly describing this kind of, we need to rally, we need to pull things together. Most of them, when you have a beer with them, describe just trying to hang on for dear life, not somehow say the wrong thing politically. They feel like most leaders describe, if I push hard on something very neutral, like, hey, we need to hold kids accountable, let's say, to do their homework, as a simple example. They feel like if the staff gets mad at them, they won't come at them. They won't come at a leader saying, hey, you're having too high of the expectation of children. They feel like they'll find some politically loose statement that the leader makes and sort of go at them with more of a cancel mentality. And that's at least, you know, the vibe I get from talking to leaders 
in Boston, which is obviously a very blue tribe state. It's a big country. People's political dynamics, you know, are, are highly varied. But, you know, we're not going to improve any school culture without a team that's explicitly trying to do so. And I just don't hear enough people saying out loud, this is what we're trying to do to get back on track. Right. All right. Fair enough. Well, I do know Doug Lamov is working on a book about how to rebuild school culture. So that's important. We'll look forward to that. And that's got to be it, right? That's got to be that the fall has, has got to bring that renewed effort. But you make a great case for all the reasons why that's going to be very difficult to do. And and uh, and we've got to be clear eyed about that. Well, Mike, I wish I wish we had better, uh, you know, more optimistic. Well, I hope I'm wrong. And, you know, let's yeah. get a dollar and we'll, one of us will collect in 2024. All right. Fair enough. Good. All right. So, again, Mike Goldstein, the founder of Match Education. Appreciate you being on the show. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Did you enjoy your your long weekend, your nice long weekend this year? I did. I really did. I went to go, you know, see my dad at the Cotton Patch Ponderosa. He lives out in the in the country in North Carolina, and that's what he calls his property. So we had a great <laughs> we had a great time. He's between two cotton patches, so hence the name. Uh, I thought you meant like the old, isn't there an old Ponderosa steakhouse? Is that still around? Does that still exist? I um, don't know, but that's what we call his place. No, it's, well, that's, it's very, very fun. Yes. And, uh, we watch a lot of Purple Martins. He's got lots of Purple Martin houses out there. So we spend some time bird watching. Oh, very good. Well, that sounds <laughs> that sounds like a, a good Father's Day and a good Juneteenth uh, weekend. Yes, so. indeed. Hope you had a nice Father's Day yourself. Uh, yes, indeed. Although a uh, little little issue, little some some COVID happening here oh, in the man. Greater Bethesda area again. Ugh. So that that caught up with our household again. But uh, yeah, yeah. Just, <sighs> thankfully, it does seem to be uh, you know for, thankfully for us and for most people you know, more of a hassle and a nuisance at this point. That's right. Um, So knock, knock on wood. Okay. So what you got for us on the research front? On the research front, we've got a new study in the Economics of Education Review, one of my favorite journals. Uh, It's examining how male and female students spend their time and the degree to which that might help explain the fact that females tend to have a higher educational attainment and achievement Mm -hmm. than males. I know you mm-hmm. like these studies where we try to like figure out, you know, what's what's going on in terms of the differences that we see with different groups. So I thought you might like this one. Uh, we talk a lot about the crises of boys in our educational system. This paper is going to look at how time investments might affect those gender disparities that we see. Okay. So it takes place in Australia. I guess this is the Australian form of Eccles. It's a nationally representative <laughs> longitudinal survey. Um, it tracks two waves of children born uh, between 03 and 04. Those, so those were the birth cohort, age zero to one, and okay. a kindergarten cohort that was born between 1999 and February 2000. They were age four or five. Uh, and this time they have these time use diaries or TUDs that parents fill out when the kids are too young to do so. And then the kids mm-hmm. start filling them out when they're old enough. The TUDs are completed every other year on both weekends and weekdays for 15-minute periods of activity. The data set allows analysts to examine child activity over a 16-year period. 
for students age birth or kindergarten up to 15 or 16 years old. They've mm-hmm. got 54,000 of these time use diaries from eight waves of data collection. They've got mm-hmm. about 9,100 children from both cohorts. And then they aggregate this time into eight buckets. Okay. Sleep. That's obviously important. Personal, <laughs> personal care, like showering, eating and drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, school. We get what that is. Educational. This is time outside of school, but educational activities like reading or doing your homework. Okay. Then the next bucket is physical activity. Then you've got chores. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then media, which is time watching TV or playing video games. And the last bucket is travel. Anytime you're in transit going or coming from somewhere. Uh, They have both cognitive test score data and non-cognitive outcomes that measure behavioral and emotional difficulties. Mm -hmm. Their models control for a myriad of individual characteristics, age, they've got a proxy for poverty, low birth weight. Uh, Then they control for family environment, like mother's education and whether they live in a two-parent home. Then they're looking at neighborhood neighborhood characteristics like average household income. And then they talk about, you know, we may be seeing some reverse causality here, meaning it's unclear whether the allocation of time affects the development or vice versa. Uh, So they control for a one-period lag of time allocation to try to deal with that. All right. Descriptively. It does, by the way, sound like the Aussie version of Eccles. It does. It It does. Uh, So on the descriptive side, males spend considerably more time on physical activity, on average about 13 minutes per day. Um, Mm -hmm. They spend more on media activities, uh, 24 minutes per day. day. Less Mm -hmm. time on personal care. These boys apparently aren't showering too much. 18 Mm -hmm. minutes per day. Less time on educational activities like we talked about reading and homework on their own time. And less time on chores. Four minutes per day. Like, what kind of chore are you doing in four <laughs> minutes per day? I, I'm telling you, this all <laughs> rings true to me so far. Yes. Okay. However, no observable gender differences in the time allocated to sleep, school, mm-hmm. which makes sense, mm-hmm. or travel mm-hmm. uh, between the genders. Moreover, we see that these differences grow over time. For instance, the difference in the time allocated to media in favor of males is observed from four to five years old and increases substantially as children continue to age. Mm -hmm. Likewise, the pattern of males being more physically active than females appears at age two or three as it increases all the way up to 12 to 13 years of age. Mm -hmm. And the gender educational time in favor of the girls appears at age two and three uh, and obviously keeps, uh, keeps growing, increases to 19 minutes per day by the time they're four or five. So then they try to break it down and say, okay, what's impacting the gap the most? And they find that differences in prior performance is the most important factor. I'm honestly not sure why that wasn't in the individual controls to begin with. Hmm. Uh, But also the gender differences in time investment are important, explaining the female advantage across the board in most of these cognitive and non-cognitive skills. Specifically, this time outside of school with the girls reading and doing homework is the most important factor contributing to the gender test score gap. Hmm. It explains about 15% of the gap in cognitive skills. And its contribution is more pronounced with the high-performing students. And then they looked at the differences in media. That was the main factor explaining the gender gaps in non-cognitive skills to the disadvantage of the boys. Um, But that only explained 3% of the difference. So comparatively, that that media disadvantage for the boys is explaining uh, less on the non-cognitive front, as is the educational activities the girls are doing for the cognitive difference. 
Uh, and then, you know, I don't think the policy implications were rocket science. They basically said, you know, we, we need some more interventions for boys to increase their time spent on educational activities outside of school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to reduce, uh, that would help reduce the test score gap. And if we could reduce their time with media, that would mirror, narrow the non-cognitive gaps that they saw. Yep. Yep. And, and then right, right, when we're done with that, we can uh, cure cancer. Oh my goodness. Ringing well, true for you, huh? <laughs> uh, this is ringing very true. It's so interesting. Although look, I, I have written about the gender gap and, you know, using the American version of Eccles, of mm-hmm. course, uh, argued that there's some evidence that there may be things happening within schools that matter, that, that there may be a teacher bias against boys, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, that these boys are tend to bounce off the walls. And so even if they show up as uh, on tests, having a, strong reading skills, they don't get put in the high reading group. We, I think we talked about this, this yeah. uh, very recently. So mm-hmm. I still think that some of these in-school things might make a fact. Make a difference too. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and you're saying that, you know, okay, they can show that the differences in what girls versus boys are doing out of school, that explains something like 15% right. of the, all right. So does that mean that 85% of the differences are still unexplained? Right. Right. And they, cause obviously they didn't look at the in-school stuff. They were right. just trying right. to figure out, you know, what, what data yeah. they had on this time use. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. No, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, look, of course, these international studies, you always say is, you know, d- does it translate? I mean, if anything's going to translate, it's probably Australia. I mean, I, I think, <laughs> I mean, in terms of culture, there's a strong argument that, you know, other than Canada, uh, you know, that's it's the closest uh, cultural twin to America. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not perfect. Right. I mean, it's right. uh, but in many ways there there are these similarities and it does all seem to ring true, uh, you know, for the most part. And. Yeah, you know what? I guess the other question is like, is is this us parents? Are we biased? You know, is it? You know, I, I've got two boys. I'm curious in families where there's a boy and a girl. Do the parents acknowledge that? You know, if if the girl showed more interest in reading, they then they encourage that more. Do they put as much try to you know get their boy as excited about reading as right. the girls? Well, especially since the the parents are filling these out, obviously, until the mm-hmm. kids able to fill it out. So you do wonder, mm-hmm. right? Are they more biased in their responses? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they're filling it out for their boys versus girls. Well, yeah. Do you? I mean, is this right? As a researcher, do you trust those diaries? Are they pretty, pretty? Well, I mean, I like the fact that they've got them, you know, for sixteen years, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And and I like the fact that you know we're this is longitudinal. These are the same kids, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I put some I put some uh, credence in it, given given the the size of the panel and the 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 timing of the panel being so long. Okay, so uh, hey, we got to do things inside of school, and we also got to do things outside of school. <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, the, the boys thing. Look, it, you know, we always talk in reading. Well, let's let's find books they like. You know, this is where you get into all kinds of stereotypes. But maybe uh, school libraries are not as friendly to boys as they used to be. You know hmm. that. Uh, yeah, you know that there used to be a time, and maybe there, it was easier to find stuff that that boys could relate to, and and now it's more of it's touchy feely. Uh-huh. Anyways, get your boys to the library and <laughs> let them read about what's the 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 one your kids like. I always remember <laughs> oh, yes. the, the carnivore Nathan, thing. Or? Yes, yes. Nathan Hale's Hazardous Tales, a great <laughs> series uh, from American history. Uh, graphic were they graphic? Not novels? appearing in your local school library. However, no, no, though. they would. They, they would. would? But okay. Yes, there was one issue on the Donner Pass, and we all know how that ended. Or if you don't know, go look it up. Uh, and yeah, note note to self: don't 
let the little brother who's still in preschool uh, overhear you reading that story out loud. All right. Uh, so they don't take that one out of the series. It's not like it goes from series number 13 uh, to 15 and 14 is conspicuously uh, absent. These okay. days with everybody, you know, trying to ban books, uh, pro- probably a book about cannibalism <laughs> maybe uh, would come under some scrutiny. Right. I don't know. Just a tad. Uh, but thinking. it's accurate. Historically accurate. Yes. Yes. That's true. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, good. We well, go all kinds you. of directions with these studies. You're, lead us you're right, ways. Amber. I did like it. I did like it. Inside oh, the black box. Well, good. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.